we want to consider the historical evidence for Jesus. And the first question that we really ought to ask ourselves is, who cares? Does it matter? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that it does matter very much. And the example I want to take, strangely, is that of Islam. Now, the Muslims or the followers of Islam are able to point to history. They are able to point to the fact that there was one Muhammad ibn Abdullah who preached throughout Arabia that there is one God, his name is Allah, that he did in fact flee Mecca to Medina in 622 AD, which then becomes known as the Hegira and for which the Muslim calendar dated. And by 630 AD, history shows that through conquest, Muhammad united all of Arabia under Islam. And then Islam extended by conquest to North Africa, the Middle East, and so forth. And there's a map there that shows for us the expansion of Islam, starting with what is now Pakistan on the east, right across to North Africa, and at one stage even included Spain, Spain and Portugal. And concerning this expansion of Islam, um, Gibbon, in his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, writes that after the la under the last of the Umayyads, which is a branch of the, uh, those who ruled the Islamic Empire, the Arabian Empire stretched 200 days journey from east to west, from the confines of Tartary and India to the shores of the Atlantic Ocean. And he goes on to say how that in this extensive empire, how the language and laws of the Quran were studied with equal devotion at Samarkand and Seville. The Moors and the Indian embraced as countrymen and brothers in the pilgrimage of Mecca. So, is Islam a religion founded on history? The answer is unquestionably yes, they are. Well, what about Christianity? The question of Jesus is a historical person would not normally be a problem because we seem to have no problem accepting such persons existed as Julius Caesar, or Alexander the Great. And Jesus was someone who never founded a business empire, was not an explorer or a discoverer of strange lands, never conducted daring conquests, as did Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar. All he, all he was was an itinerant preacher. So why would we even bother to note Jesus as a person of history? The challenge for us is that it includes the Bible account of Jesus includes events which are clearly miraculous. People were made well by Jesus simply saying the word. We saw that this morning in Mark chapter 10, blind Bartimaeus. There is the account of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. There's the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When did you last see a person rise from the dead? And there is the Apostle Peter, even, who was able to walk on water toward Jesus. So let's restate the problem. We would not even worry if Jesus was a person of history, seeing he wasn't a great general, a great statesman, a great king, a great business founder. He's merely an itinerant preacher from the world's perspective. But there are these very uncomfortable accounts of events clearly miraculous. Now, does it matter? Well, it does matter. This is a book I have at home, written by John Shelby Spong. He was the Episcopalian. Episcopalian is the American version of the Church of England. And he was a bishop of Newark in New Jersey in the United States. 
Throughout the early pages of his book, he rejects the idea that the dictated word of God is inerrant, that is, doesn't have errors. He was adamant that Jonah could not live in a whale for three days, uh, despite the fact that there are accounts of people have done that. He says the Bible's full of contradictions. It's simply not possible, said he, for Joshua to request the sun stand still. He, he clearly does not accept this idea of miracles or miraculous events. He rejects Matthew's gospel account that at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, many people were raised. He, he asks the question concerning the wandering of the Israelis through the wilderness when they left Egypt. Did manna really rain down from heaven? He dismisses the account of Noah and the ark and the collected animals. By the way, by the way, just a digression, um, he, he derides Noah's ark as a tiny boat. From the measurements given in Genesis 6, Noah's tiny boat was the size, the equivalent of 20,000 gross registered tons. Now you say, well, so what? Vessels of that size were not constructed till after World War II. Not such a tiny boat. And so he continues that most academics no longer believe in the historic accuracy of biblical texts, which straight away is a problem for us, because if the biblical texts are not historically accurate, then Jesus is a person of myth or legend, and we really can't take very much notice of them. Now, unfortunately for Mr Spong, the arguments that he proposed, and by the way, don't ask me how, he still claims to be a committed Christian, those arguments ignore a harsh reality. If the principal exponent of Christianity, Jesus Christ, cannot be accepted, much less proven, as a historical figure, there is utterly no point to Christianity. No point whatever. Remember, Islam can say, we know our religion is based on history. The point of Christianity is if it is not based on history, then we're absolutely wasting our time. Okay, so the question of Jesus as a historic figure is fundamental to the reality of Christianity. So how do we establish that Jesus is a historical figure? Well, with any historical figure, there is one constant. There were eyewitnesses to their activities. Now, close to the time, the reports of the eyewitnesses are accepted usually without challenge. But... As time progresses and we move further away from the actual events, then doubt is cast on those eyewitness accounts. And I have another illustration for us here. Just let me catch up with my notes. Think about the advancing American or Allied and Red Army troops as they closed in on Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen and other hideous places of similar ilk and discovered what the Nazis had done to the Jews and a whole lot of other people they labelled as undesirables. There were soldiers there who saw what was going on, what had gone on. Incredibly, there were people who survived the atrocities in those camps and testified what went on. But you see, we've moved on a bit. Yeah, 1945, what's that? 75 years ago, 76 years ago. And the Holocaust deniers have become more 
and more vocal because they say, oh, well, you know, we can't trust the eyewitness account. Nobody even dreamed of saying that in 1945. It's only when you move further and further and further away from the actual events of history that the naysayers come to the fore. Now, we have a problem. Jesus Christ lived 2,000 years ago. It's easy to say, oh, figment of imagination. Didn't really exist. Oh, well, I concede he was existing. He said some nice things, but I don't accept he walked on water and I don't accept he raised people from the dead and, and so on and so forth. So we have a problem. We are 2,000 years removed from the accounts of eyewitnesses. Additionally, the eyewitnesses reported extraordinary activities. We've documented them before. And it is no wonder, then, that it leads to deep scepticism. So, how do we establish that Jesus is a figure of history? Well, we can start with somebody who was the prefect later on that office was described as that of a procurator. Pontius Pilate, he is notorious as the one who ordered Jesus of Nazareth be crucified. Now, he is a governor, literally a prefect. Later, as I said, the office was that of a procurator. Now, I do have a quotation here from, um, from but, oh, both of these from Wikipedia, actually. Sources on Pontius Pilate are limited, but note this. Modern scholars know more about him than about other Roman governors of Judea. That's remarkable. Why should he come to the fore? Why should we know more about him? Well, from the Bible point of view, it's obvious. He was the one who ordered the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, a historical event. Now, then it goes on to list uh, a number of sources. There's the embassy to Gaius after the year 41. After the year 41. That's about five years after Pontius Pilate finished his prefecture of Judea. By the contemporary Jewish writer Philo of Alexandria, the Jewish wars he wrote about 74 AD, and the antiquities of the Jews around about 94 AD by Josephus. We are talking at the most 50 years, 60 years after the event. There's another character, Ignatius of Antioch. Now, he wrote between 105 and 110. A bit further removed is true, but he wrote about um, Pontius Pilate and so forth in these various epistles. He's also briefly mentioned in Annals of the Roman Historian Tacitus, which is the early 2nd centuries. And Tacitus simply says that Pontius Pilate put Jesus to death without much further elaboration. Now, is Pontius Pilate a figure of history? You betcha, because excavated at Caesarea was a stone and it bore the name of Pontius Pilate. Why Caesarea? Because that was the place where the Roman prefects resided when they weren't having to go up to Jerusalem to keep the peace and to hear some yet another Jewish complaint. Now, in this 2,000 years and more since Jesus lived, there are historians and writers who have given very careful thought to the question of Jesus being a fact of history. There is F. F. Bruce, who was the Rylands Professor of Biblical Criticism at the University of Manchester. Now, we mentioned this gentleman, Cornelius Tacitus, and another gentleman, Lucian of Samosata, and he wrote in the 2nd century AD, Tacitus writing 100 AD. Now, still, still, you know, 60, 65 years off, and you say, well, hang on, that's the gap between the Holocaust and 2021. Scepticism. 
Let me just put that in a bit of context for you. Julius Caesar launched a very difficult conquest of what is now France in 55 BC. Stubbornly fought, nevertheless, the Roman arms triumphed. There are five manuscripts mentioning Julius Caesar and his wars in what was then called Gaul. And the oldest manuscript is a thousand years after the event. Here we have writings barely 50, 60 years after the event. Now, that's quite astonishing. Quite astonishing. We have no trouble accepting Julius Caesar as a fact of history. Why is it that we have difficulty accepting the testimony of Cornelius Tacitus, who wrote around about 100 AD, or Lucian of Samosata, who wrote in the 2nd century? Now, Lucian, as you see on the on the um, slide up there, connected them, the Christians, with the synagogues of Palestine and alluded to Christ as the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult into the world. Lucian of Samosata had no problems saying, one, that Jesus existed, two, he died by crucifixion. We've mentioned Flavius Josephus. I have a little more to say about him later on. Now, this is the uh, detailed record of, from Cornelius Tacitus. I mentioned his writing before. He writes concerning the time of Nero. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So, Tacitus is adamant, one, that it was in the reign of Tiberius, we can check that up, two, that Pontius Pilate was the prefect, the procurator, and three, that he crucified Jesus of Nazareth. And Tacitus does not write from the perspective that's a myth. He writes from the perspective of known certifiable history. Another Latin writer called Suetonius wrote in 120 AD about the life of Claudius. There were two gentlemen called Pliny, Plinius Secundus, otherwise known as Pliny the Younger, he wrote in 112 AD. Thallus, a Samaritan-born historian at 52 AD, wrote of Jesus of Nazareth, and he was cited by one Julius Africanus concerning the gospel account of darkness over all the land. Another chappie by the name of Mara Barserapion in a private letter written round about 73 AD. This one is cited by F.F. F. Bruce, whom we've mentioned earlier. And another character called Justin Martyr, who wrote 150 AD in defence before the Emperor Antoninus Pius. Now, this one's interesting. And we've included his quotation in full. Speaking before the Emperor Antoninus Pius, Justin Martyr said, in 150 AD, said, they pierced my hands and my feet. They had a description of the nails that were fixed in his hands and his feet on the cross. And after he was crucified, those who crucified him cast lots for his garments and divided them among themselves. Now we read that in the Gospel records. Now, the next bit is extremely interesting. And that these things were so, you may learn from the acts which were recorded under Pontius Pilate. Now, we're used to the fact that Australia has cabinet documents. And every so often, usually after 30 years, to protect the guilty, Cabinet documents are released to the general public and they contain all sorts of information 
most of it boring, some of it extremely fascinating. Well, the Romans did that too. Pontius Pilate maintained diplomatic archives, annals, and Justin Martyr is in his defence saying, don't take my word for it, don't take my word for it, go and check the annals of Pontius Pilate and you'll see that what I'm saying is true. But even more significantly, that Jesus performed these miracles, you may easily be satisfied from the acts of Pontius Pilate. Well, imagine that. In the, now, you know, since the Jews were such a troublesome group of people, it, was, it would be derelict for the Roman prefects not to be aware of what was happening in their area. Pontius Pilate would be very well aware of this itinerant preacher who healed people merely by speaking, who walked on water and later on rose from the dead. Now, some other quotations. This is from Eric Myers, who is the Emeritus Professor in Judaic Studies at Duke University, a fairly prominent university in the United States. Now, he says, I don't know any mainstream scholar who doubts the historicity of Jesus. The details have been debated for centuries, but... No one who is serious doubts that Jesus is a historical figure. Now, that's very important. You always get these, dare I say, loony lefts who say that Jesus didn't exist. What he's saying is that any scholar worth his salt does not doubt that Jesus is a person of history. Now, in doing the research for this, I stumbled across an article from The Guardian dated 14th of April 2017. I found it rather interesting. The Guardian says, strikingly, there was never any debate in the ancient world about whether Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure. In the earliest literature of the Jewish rabbis, Jesus was denounced as the illegitimate child of Mary. That matches the record in John chapter 8, where the Jews flung at Jesus, we were not born of fornication. And it's also denounced as a sorcerer. That matches the account in the gospel record that says two witnesses said, we heard him say he would, build, he would tear down this temple and build it in three days. Bearing in mind, of course, that the Jews claimed it 46 years to build the temple. So... The records that the Jews kept match what the gospel records had to say about Jesus, even though they misquoted him, and the fact that they were convinced he was the illegitimate child of Mary. So that was from the Guardian. I thought that was quite actually interesting. So Jesus as a person of history can't deny that but now we're getting onto the tricky stuff. Oh, well, yes, we agree that Jesus is a person of history. But the fact that he rose from the... No, no, they were mistaken. The early believers were mistaken. The early believers were mistaken. Jesus didn't actually die. He, he swooned. He was very unwell. He swooned. But three days later, he revived and, and out he came and so forth. Well, there's some serious flaws, unfortunately, with that problem. Wilbur Smith is generally better known for his novels set in 17th to 19th and 20th century Africa. He wrote this. Let it simply be said that we know more about the details of the hours immediately before and the actual death of Jesus in and near Jerusalem than we know about the death of any other one man in the ancient world. Look, that's extraordinary. 
Why don't we know much about the death of Julius Caesar or, or, or the death of Alexander the Great or, or the death of Napoleon Bonaparte or whatever? How is it that we know more about the death of a mere preacher than about any others? That's extraordinary. It's centred, of course, on the extraordinary things he did. Now, Romans knew a lot about suffering and death and how to inflict it. When people were crucified, the intention of crucifying was to provide a death that was particularly slow and painful, hence our English term excruciating, literally, out of crucifying. Now, the Romans knew what death was. Make no mistake about that. Now, for this reason, we now want to come to Mark chapter 15, please. Mark chapter 15 and verse... verse and we'll pick up the reading from verse 42 for the immediate context. So, Jesus and two others have been crucified. Evening has come. It's a preparation day, the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Right, now let's put this in a bit of context here. I knew that was significant. Um, let's put that in a bit of context. From the information we can get, Jesus was crucified sometime before the sixth hour of the day. Sometime before that. We are told that from the sixth to the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And then sometime after the ninth hour, Jesus died. So in total, four hours, five hours, six hours at the most. Six hours at the most. People who were crucified usually lingered for three to four days. And it was designed that way. It was designed to inflict maximum suffering. Now, here comes the significance then. Joseph Arimathea goes in and says, I want the body of Jesus of Nazareth. What are you talking about, says Pilate? Oh, I'm t Jesus of Nazareth is dead. Now, what does the record say? Verse 44, Pilate marvelled, as well he might, as well he might. Pilate marvelled that Jesus was already dead. Well, he wasn't going to accept Joseph Arimathea's word for that. He summoned the centurion. He asked him if he'd been dead, what, two minutes ago, five minutes ago, half an hour, for some time. And when this, he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. For Jesus to have died in six hours or less was extraordinary. Extraordinary. It's no wonder that Pilate marvelled. Now, we will come back to Mark, but can we please now come to John 19? And we have another account of the crucifixion there. John 19. And this picks up again the preparation day narrative that we saw earlier in Mark's Gospel. So verse 31. Because of the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, the Jews asked Pilate that their loads might be broken and that they might be taken away. So in other words, what happened was um, by breaking the legs of people who were crucified, death would come much more rapidly. They would effectively asphyxiate. So, verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with Jesus. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw he was already dead. Oh, we're talking about soldiers here. Soldiers. They knew what death was. And they were not mistaken in saying, in seeing that Jesus of Nazareth died. So they didn't break his legs, but for good measure, one of them thrust his spear into the side of Jesus. Well, 
I can tell you that if Jesus wasn't dead before this, the loss of blood and water, bodily fluids, would certainly have finished him off. No two ways about that. No two ways about that. Jesus actually died. There were far too many knowledgeable people who witnessed that fact. So, we come then to our most critical issue of all. Jesus of Nazareth, who never conquered a great empire, who never built a huge business empire, who never painted great pictures, who never carved great statues, who never composed grand music, would not even be noticed by history. Were it not for the record of his miraculous works, including the resurrection of two men and most notably of Jesus himself. The historical reality of Jesus rests upon the historical accuracy of his miraculous works and, most importantly of all, that he rose from the dead. Now, it's often claimed that the followers of Jesus were deeply distressed by his death. Well, that was certainly true. And they, they were, were so anxious, so longing that Jesus would be with them again that they mistook somebody else. And they were so glad to see that somebody else, they thought he was Jesus and promptly proclaimed that he had risen from the dead. Well, a serious problem with that is that the scriptural account shows that the resurrection of Christ was witnessed by the unwilling. And this is where our reading of Mark chapter 16 comes to the fore. So can we now turn to that? And we're going to go through that in some detail. Now, let's firstly note in Mark 15 verse 46 that Joseph of Arimathea has taken Jesus down, wrapped him in linen and laid him in a tomb. Okay, laid him in a tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. All right. So they're there when Jesus is buried. Okay. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mark 16, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices. So Jesus' followers knew that he would rise from the dead and they're just counting the days when Jesus would rise from the dead and they'd say, today's the day. Jesus is going to rise from the dead. That's not what the Bible record says. They're preparing spices. What are they doing that for? That they might come and anoint him. Why would they bother doing that if they knew that Jesus would rise from the dead? They were convinced that Jesus was still dead. So very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And as they're going to the tomb, they suddenly realise, we've got a bit of a problem. We've got a bit of a problem. Who's going to roll the stone away? Now, lest we be thinking, oh yeah, just that size. We're told that the stone in verse 4 was very large. Now, I've seen some writing, I can't confirm its accuracy, but I've seen some writing that said that. Okay, illustration. Stone started up here, then when you're going to seal the tomb, you roll the stone down this channel here and then across it go to there to cover up the tomb. I've seen a writing that says it would take 20 men to push that stone away, back up where it was before. 20 men. I couldn't find any evidence to confirm that. Nevertheless, they're coming along and they realise they've got a problem. They're not expecting Jesus to have risen from the dead. They think he's still dead. And furthermore, they've got a problem because how are we going to get into the tomb? So verse 4, when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away. Well, they weren't expecting that. Verse 5, entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side. Ah, Jesus is risen. It's all wonderful. 
No, the record says they were alarmed. They were frightened. They weren't sure what was going on. So the young man says, don't be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they've laid him. Go and tell his disciples and so on. Verse 8. Verse 8. That's wonderful news. We're so happy. We weren't really sure about this, but we're now going to go away. And that's not what the record says. The record says they went out quickly and they fled from the tomb. They trembled. They were amazed. And they said nothing to anybody. Why? Because they were scared. This, for these women, was a totally unexpected development. Totally unexpected. The repeated reports of the sightings of the resurrected Jesus were met with disbelief. Verse 9. When Jesus rose early in the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven demons. In other words, she was quite mad, or had been quite mad. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned. Why were they mourning and weeping if they expected Jesus to rise from the dead? No, quite the opposite. They were convinced, as two said on the road to Emmaus, we trusted it had been he who would deliver us. Their hopes were dashed, gone. So they're all mourning and weeping. Mary comes along and says, I have seen the risen Jesus. Oh, that's wonderful. What does the record say? When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. The resurrection of Jesus witnessed by the unwilling. Verse 12, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. That's the record we have in Luke 24 of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They, of course, raised back. They went and told us the rest, but they did not believe them either. They did not believe them either. Let's have a look at Luke 24. We will come back to Mark, but Luke 24, just quickly. Luke 24. Now, this is another slant on Mary Magdalene having visited the tomb and seen Jesus. Luke 24, verse 10. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles and their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. Disciples longing for the resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> the reports of the actual resurrection of Jesus were met with utter disbelief. I mentioned before, Luke 24, there was absolute conviction by Jesus' followers that all was lost. We've seen how in Mark 16, they mourned and wept. And in Luke 24, the two on the road said, oh, we trusted it had been he, uh, you know, and, and the implication is that's all gone. It's all, it's all vanished. It's no longer there. Furthermore, the miraculous appearance of the risen Jesus caused fear and panic in the disciples. Why should it do that if they were fully expecting the resurrection? Well, recall our reading in Mark 10 this morning when Jesus told them in plain words what was going to happen and they just didn't understand. Jesus might as well have spoken to them in Swahili. Luke 24 Verses 36 to 38. As they said these things, that is, the two from the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? You know, the other thing that actually 
um, is actually claimed. Oh, well, because the disciples were hallucinating, they mistook somebody else for Jesus. Now, what does the record say? Verse 39. Behold my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Handle me and see. Handle me and see. Any hallucination that anyone was suffering would have been dispelled, as Thomas did. You know, we, we have a lot of fun with Thomas. Doubting Thomas, he will not believe unless he can put his finger into the holes which the nails made in Jesus' hand, and that he can put his hand into the side of Jesus where the spear thrust was. Jesus invited the disciples, handle me and see, it really is me. The disciples took a lot of convincing that that was the case. Any hallucination suffered by the followers of Jesus would be dispersed by inspection in the way that Jesus invited them to do. Now, have a different line of inquiry here, legal testimony. There have been many very eminent lawyers and judges who have considered the account of the resurrection of Jesus. And the first one that I want to bring to your attention is Sir Edward Clark, King's Counsel, in a letter that he wrote to a gentleman, E.L. McCassie. And I've put up some extracts of that, but it's worth reading in full. Just bear with me. Sir Edward Clark, as a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for the events of the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. Now, note carefully what he says next. Over and over again in the High Court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows on evidence, and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection is of this class. And as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of truthful men to facts they were able to substantiate. There was a gentleman, John Singleton Copley, otherwise known as Lord Lyndhurst. He held, in one lifetime, all the highest offices that a British legal mind could occupy, including the Attorney General, the Chief Justice, and so forth. After his decease, a handwritten note was found. It says, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. This gentleman, Simon Greenleaf, is a Royal Professor at Law at Harvard University. Now, he and his predecessor, Justice Joseph Storey, raised the Harvard University's legal department to the preeminent legal school in the United States. This is a long quote, but it's very worthwhile reading. And again, we've got some dot points there in the screen. Simon Greenleaf. The great truths which the apostles declared were that Christ had risen from the dead and that only through repentance from sin and faith in him could men hope for salvation. This doctrine they asserted with one voice everywhere, not only under the greatest discouragements, but in the face of the most appalling errors that can be presented to the mind of man. Their master had recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of a public tribunal. 
His religion sought to overthrow the religions of the whole world. Acts 17, these men that have turned the world upside down. The laws of every country were against the teachings of the disciples. The interests and passions of all the rulers and great men in the world were against them. The fashion of the world was against them. Propagating this new face, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, oppositions, revilings, bitter persecution, stripes, imprisonments, torments and cruel deaths. Yet this faith they zealously did propagate, and all these miseries they endured undismayed. Nay, rejoicing, as one after another was put to a miserable death, the survivors only prosecuted their work with increased vigour and resolution. The annals of military warfare afford scarcely an example of the like heroic constancy, patience and unblenching courage. They had every possible motive to review carefully the grounds of their faith and the evidences of the great facts and truths which they asserted. And these motives were pressed upon their attention with the most melancholy and terrific frequency. It was therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truths they had narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead and had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew of any other fact. Simon Greenleaf goes on to say that because of the, the ferocious opposition they experienced, they had every opportunity to question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did we make a mistake? But did we handle someone all the excuses? And again, they said, no. We saw the risen Jesus. We knew he died. And we've known that he is risen from the dead. Simon Greenleaf goes on to say that these are not heroes in the mould of Alexander the Great. They possessed, he says, the ordinary constitution of our common nature. Yet their lives show them to have been men like all others of our race, swayed by the same motives, animated by the same hopes, affected by the same joys, subdued by the same sorrows, etc. To this point, the apostles who propagated the Jesus risen from the dead were no different from any of us sitting in this hall tonight or listening online. No different. And yet, unflinchingly, in the face of ferocious opposition, they preached that Jesus rose from the dead. Why would you do that if that wasn't a fact of history? And that's a point that Simon Greenleaf is making. Very carefully thought out legal testimony. Now, we have some other expert testimonies. Professor Thomas Arnold wrote the Sermons on the Christian Life. The evidence may be and often has been shown to be satisfactory. He says, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort. Brooke Foss Westcott, Regis Professor, Cambridge University, makes the point that no historic incident is better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. This is an interesting one. Lord Darling, the former Chief Justice of England, he was at a private dinner party uh, and during the party the talk turned to the truth of Christianity and particularly to a certain book dealing with the resurrection. Now it was reported that 
placing his fingertips together, assuming a judicial attitude and speaking with a quiet emphasis that was extraordinarily impressive. He said, We as Christians are asked to take a very great deal on trust. The teachings, for example, and the miracles of Jesus. If we had to take it all on trust, I, for one, should be sceptical. The crux of the problem was whether Jesus was or was not what he proclaimed himself to be must surely depend upon the truth or otherwise of the resurrection. On that greatest point, says Lord Darling, we are not merely asked to have faith in its favour as a living truth. There exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. What's our take-home message from all this? We've spent a lot of time examining whether Jesus is a person of history. Does it matter? It matters a very great deal. The resurrection of Jesus is a fact of history. The Bible extensively and repeatedly claims divine authorship for its entire message, even though humans wrote what God dictated. The Bible tells in extensive detail the life, death and resurrection of an itinerant preacher, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is indeed a person of history. His death and his resurrection were extensively documented. So what does that all mean for us? Embedded in the message of Jesus is a message of hope, of salvation, of deliverance from a world of pain, of suffering, of sorrow, of the inhumanity of man to man, such as what's taking place in Afghanistan right now. We can have the utmost confidence in the Bible's message of salvation.